Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Baroness Helena Kennedy. Helena is one of Britain's most distinguished lawyers and has dedicated her more than 40-year career to giving voice to those who have least power within the system. Helena has worked on some of the UK's most high-profile cases, including the appeal by the Guildford Four, who were wrongly accused and imprisoned for planting an IRA bomb in a pub used by British soldiers. Many listeners may have seen the Daniel Day-Lewis movie In the Name of the Father, which is based on this case. She's a leading voice for equal opportunities for women working in law and has been a champion for reforms to address the discrimination experienced by women in the legal system and women generally. She is a Labor peer, hence Baroness, and has sat as a member of the House of Lords since 1997, where she advocates for civil liberties and social justice. She has received honours for her work on human rights from the French and Italian governments and has been awarded more than 30 honorary doctorates and received the Times Newspaper's Lifetime Achievement Award in 1999 in recognition of her work for women. I'm exhausted by that introduction. You do so much. I am going to take you back to your childhood. But before we do, I wanted to talk to you about two things that you've been working on in recent times. Right around the world, I think women watched with broken hearts as the Taliban stripped women of their newly won rights to work and to have an education. But you've been doing a lot more than watching. Can you tell us about your Evacuate Her campaign? It really was a horrible time because uh, you'll remember those horrible images of, of people trying to get onto aeroplanes that were leaving with the military, with the with ambassadors, with the people who'd represented Western countries in Afghanistan. And at the same time, I was receiving calls from women judges, women prosecutors, defence lawyers, people who had been advocates for women's rights and so on. Really heartbreaking, heartbreaking stuff. They were hiding in basements. They were, had moved to other people's homes, but where they couldn't stay for long. They had their children with them. Their husbands were, of course, I'm also at risk because the idea of women in public life was just unacceptable to the Taliban. At the time when 
you remember the Taliban were ousted. We were invited in, the International Bar Association, and I head up their Institute of Human Rights. Uh, now I'm the director. But prior to that, I was the chair of the institute. And at that time, 2008, we helped them set up a, an independent bar association in Afghanistan. And we argued very strongly that the, the legal profession had to have women in it, the bench had to have women on it, and the law schools had to open their doors to women. And they responded, and women and women did go in, and women transferred from being teachers and became judges, and it was all extraordinary, and they studied law. And so these women were used to getting threats, but there was nothing like it, what they were receiving now, because guys that they'd sent to prison for sexual violence against women, rape, domestic violence, forced marriage, child marriage, trafficking in women, they jailed them, and they were now out of jail because the jails had been opened. They were on kill lists, and I was getting text messages from them, I would then phone them, and I realised that we had to do something. I started saying to my marvellous young lawyers who work at the International Bar Association's Institute of Human Rights, how are other folk getting out? Well, some people were heading for borders and were trying to slide across them. And But we heard that uh, Christian organisations in America were paying for fl- chartered flights to get Christians, because apparently Christian communities in Afghanistan, they were coming to the rescue of Christians there. And so I contacted them, really saying, is there any chance you could stick a few of my judges in the back of your plane? I wasn't planning to start chartering planes myself. But anyway, it turned out that that was exactly what I had to do, because there was no room at the back of the planes. I then discovered, to my shock and horror, that to charter a plane, it would cost $750,000. I then had to raise the money. And so I ran through around everybody that I knew that might have any money and begged and borrowed and got people to commit to enough funding that I chartered the first plane. And that first plane got out 26 women lawyers and judges, a couple of women MPs and a couple of journalists. What an incredible story. Unfortunately, this isn't the only time that people have been running for borders. We've been watching that in the Ukraine. And I know you're involved there too. Can you talk to us about that? That's on a a different front. There's a real serious problem there on the issue of refugees and people seeking sanctuary. But I'm working with um, Amal Clooney, who's a colleague of mine in my chambers, and uh, a, a really wonderful, brilliant lawyer. And she was contacted by the Prosecutor General in Ukraine. And she's put together a task force, which I'm on. On, which is looking at how we can put together a set of indictments on war crimes. You know, there's no doubt there's lots of organisations already gathering evidence of the horrors, and we've seen it on our own screens. I mean, let's be clear, you know, and this was a war which has probably been more filmed than any war because the president of Ukraine invited people in, you know, the world's press to see what was happening. And people, of course, nowadays have, have their, their cameras can, can film horrifying stuff. There's a wonderful thing called Eyewitness. I want to give it a plug for it. And it's a way of filming things that you want to make a record of, but you can press a button. If you've got the app, you can press the, bu- the Eyewitness button and it goes into an archive immediately, which then captures the metadata, you know, where, when, the exact geographical location. And so it's a really wonderful way of storing evidence that can't be challenged. So there is going to be a lot of evidence and the question is going to be, can it be gathered together in a way that then can be admissible 
credible evidence in, in some sort of tribunal or court. We, of course, have the problem, which is that Russia is likely to exercise its veto about any uh, international court of justice intervention. Happily, the International Criminal Court has started an investigation. We're hoping that that will be forthcoming in the fullness of time. But um, it may be that we will have to think about ways in which a, a tribunal could be set up. Well, I'm sure we all wish you well in that incredible work. I'm going to change speed now and actually take you back in time to the 1950s and 1960s when you were growing up in Glasgow. Your father was a trade unionist and your mother was really prolific in the local community, helping women who were victims of domestic abuse. It's easy to see the links here to your career, but can you tell us a bit about what it was like growing up in that kind of environment and how it influenced you? I had a really good childhood in the, in the, I had very loving, wonderful parents. I was brought up in a Catholic home. My parents were very, what would be considered to be very good Catholics, which is, isn't a label I would attach to myself. Their values were incredibly good and they really were people who wanted to do good and to live as decent people. And we were not well off. We were working class people. My father was what was called a bundle strangler. He worked in the newspapers and the newspapers would come off the printing presses and then you know, he would be involved in dispatching of newspapers up and down the country, Scotland. And so they'd be all kind of tied up, thrown into vans and up to Inverness and Perth and wherever. And he ended up being what was called the father of the chapel. He was, the you know, the shop steward for those who worked in that particular area of the print world. He was a good man. I mean, a really lovely man. And I was lucky probably because I was his blue eye. My father was in the army for six years. My mother was at home in Glasgow. I was brought up in a tenement until I was at 10 and then you know with a a toilet but no bathroom and uh, a back green where you hung your washing and all that you know my mother went to would have to go to the public wash house to wash clothes and we weren't well off people my mother had two children while my father was in the army would come home and leave and she would always get pregnant so I've got two older sisters who are nine and ten years older than me and so when I was born there also had been a boy who was born after the war and he was still born he was in the process of birth he was strangled by the umbilical cord of course people didn't talk about those things but I think it was it was hard on my mother and I, a great disappointment I think probably to my dad that this is the first baby that he was there for and then I was the bo- one who was born after that so I was a very cherished child and I had two big sisters who loved having a baby and a father who basically I was almost like a firstborn and so I got all this good stuff lo- lots of love not a lot of money around but a lot of th- and if my parents went through hard times I mean there were times when my father was unemployed I remember going with him and holding his hand as they counted down a line for casual labour, you know, one, two, three, four, and it would stop before it reached my father and feeling his disappointment, which, you know, even as a child, you knew that this was not good, that he hadn't got the bit of work that he needed for the next day. I remember all that stuff, but I also feel I was brought up in a very happy household. With your sisters and growing up in that family, when would have been the first time that you said to yourself, hmm, I think girls get treated differently to boys? 
I don't think I was that conscious of that. I went to a mixed school, Catholic school, and there were state schools, and uh, there were boys in my class and so on. I mean, I was aware that boys sort of didn't like girls that were too clever, and I was considered to be clever, you see. And so, you know, there was that whole thing of to be a girl who was clever was obviously, and there were girls who chose then not to be clever because that mattered, you know, in getting male approval. And I kind of, it mattered more to me that I had my father's approval, (laughs) I suppose, and also I had great teachers. I had a great teacher, Mr. Lavelle, who taught me Latin and Greek and who got me debating. And I think who really was the person who in many ways was important to me and encouraging me to think about going to university, maybe even studying something. other. My mother wanted me to become a school teacher, as was the very much the aim in the, in that time in the 60s that, you know, if you could, if you were going to stay on at school, then you should become a teacher. And what a great job it was because you could then be a mother who had lots of time with your children as well and the school holidays and things. But I also wanted to flee the coop. I was reading books that, you know, which were all about the left bank and uh, France. And and then I read the group about a group of women at an American college. And anyway, I just had this desire to sort of see the world. And so I, I went down to study in London. Would it be fair to say you were a bit of a rebel in your teenage years? Oh, I was. And that led to a break with your family, but ultimately a reconciliation? Oh, no, I, I didn't ever have a break with my family. I became a feminist. I went down to London. I became quite uh, clear. I always had good class politics. I say good class politics, good in my view. In that I was always kind of quite conscious of how class worked. And my parents were, were proudly working class. And my, my mother's thing was, never think you're better than anybody else but nobody's better than you. I think that she instilled in me this sense that I was never going to tug my forelock to anybody. But when I came down to London, I sort of joined left-wing groups and all of that. And the people that I studied with, it was a great radical time. It was the late 60s. I was with all these public school boys. There were very few women. And I was with all these uh, young men who'd gone to very fancy, highly expensive schools where they'd boarded and been beaten and caned <laughs> and all kinds of horrible things. And they were all pretty left-wing too. My left-wing politics were nurtured in this, this gang of people who'd gone to Cambridge and so forth. And the people who were studying with me in London. But I also, the women's movement, the beginning of the 70s was the kickoff of the women's movement. And so when you say to me, when did I first become aware? I was conscious of my being a rare thing when I was studying at law school because there were so few women and the women who were there were from a very different class from me. And I was political and and I had always debated Many of my friends I kind of was drawn to had came to study law from the Caribbean, from uh, Pakistan, from Malaysia, from, you know, all the people who were, if you like, Commonwealth students, as they were called at that time, came to study law, then to go back home to practice. I became friends with lots of them. And of course, they brought their own sort of political stories of what life was like in, in their own places and how things worked. I became very interested in international politics. I was becoming much more alert to the situation of women. I don't think I had been conscious of it greatly. When I was in my teens, I wasn't very aware of of patriarchy or anything. It was the light bulb moment of the sort of sudden burgeoning of the women's movement and then linking it with class politics. And then when I started practicing at the bar as a baby barrister, I started seeing the ways in which women were treated differently. And if you conform to 
understood a very a decent stereotype of what a good woman looked like, then that would make it all right. But if you were some sort of mouthy woman, a difficult woman, or a woman who was uh, a lesbian, or a woman who was in some way deemed aberrant, then you, you really got it in the teeth. I mean, you really could suffer badly. So I started seeing all of this stuff. And then I started getting involved in domestic violence things. And that was when I realized, remembered people coming to my mother. And my mother sort of, you know, going into the places where she hid money for emergencies <laughs> and, uh, and giving it to people so that they could. I remember we had a, a young woman who came and lived in the tenement that we were in and um, we could hear that she was being beaten. And then my mother at some point brought her into the house and she had a black eye and things. And my mother said, why didn't you? She was from England. And my mother said, why didn't you go back home to your people? My mother found the fear for her and gave it to her. And, and we had nothing. But my mother always had this sort of hidey, hidey holes where she kept money for emergencies. Of course, at that point, becoming a feminist meant that I, I started seeing the ways in which, for example, the Catholic Church controlled the lives of women. And I saw the way in which women in Scotland, I'd be going back home in school, you know, on, on vacation, summer vacation from my studies. And I would see that we had relatives who, you know, their husbands had left them and the women were expected to live solitary lives and uh, couldn't start another relationship. All the ways in which the Catholic Church and the power of the priesthood. And when I started sort of pointing this out to my mother and my parents, they got anxious that I was losing my faith. And so if there was an area of tension at all, it was around the fact that I was not remaining a Catholic in the way that they felt a Catholic should behave, that we should be, you know, doing what the church told us to do. So you're a barrister, you're a woman barrister, that's unusual. You're a woman barrister from your background, that's even more unusual. You're very interested in cases that involve women. And then you also step up and take incredibly controversial cases like those connected to the IRA at a time when obviously the IRA bombing campaign in the UK meant that there was a great deal of fear around and your average person probably just thought anybody the police suspects, they should just throw them inside and throw away the key. What took you on that path? I mean, that was a big thing to do in those times particularly. Well, it started because I, I really was doing a lot of civil liberties cases. The organisation Liberty at that time was called the National Council of Civil Liberties. And I used to volunteer and do things for them. And I had a very clear sense of why I was in the law. I wanted basically people from my kind of background to get proper representation in it. But I, I've always had a very deep sense of the importance of law. And although I've had diversions off into other things, I've been, uh, I've done broadcasting, I've written a television series, or I'd worked with a wonderful playwright, Peter Flannery, when we did a thing called Blind Justice. I've, you know, gone into education and played different roles in education, including running an Oxford college for a number of years. But at the heart of it is law. And for me, it is the, my, the driving force because I do believe that law has a powerful way of changing cultures and creating change in people's lives. And I believe in the rule of law. I mean, there was a moment, you know, there was a, that Will Bailey was bombed. And after that, when the people who were accused of it were arrested, solicitors had difficulty in getting eminent QCs and lawyers to take on the case because people were, were feeling that they didn't want to go there. For me, it was the test of whether you, you of one's commitment to the rule of law. 
I don't I ever have any problem about saying to people why I do. I always, when people say to me, how can you represent people who are doing these terrible things and so on? I say, well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not the sitting in judgment on them. I'm there to make sure that their case is fought hard in the way that they would do themselves if they were trained in the law. But I also was conscious of the fact that there was a great deal of prejudice around being Irish in Britain. You can hear my voice and so on. I'm a Scot. I'm a Scot of Irish origins. My grandparents were Irish. My grandparents had got out of Ireland at the sort of turn of the century. They had got out because of poverty, but also because bad things were happening. Some of my grandparents were from Northern Ireland. And if you're a Catholic in Northern Ireland, then your options were not terrific, you know. I was a conscious of the prejudice there was towards Irish people. And it really was strong at that time. And I knew from an early stage that some of the people who were being charged were being pulled in, were being pulled in because of Irishness and because of their, their they were Irish nationalists, Irish Republicans. But it didn't make you guilty of a, a criminal offence. It wasn't a crime to be an Irish nationalist. And many of those people, let me tell you, there was the Guildford Four, 17 years spent in prison. I do a lot of work now about training. We have young people who who do this, young, wonderful lawyers, training people in other countries around the whole business of the use of torture, coercive interrogation, threats, threats to your family and so on, in order to get people to confess to crimes. And once you do that psychologically to people, we, we all know now the evidence is there. The effect of that on the mental status of the person means that they will often make confessions to things that they haven't done because of what they've gone through. And so the, the Guildford Four was an example of that. But I did a whole set of miscarriage of justice cases where people had confessed to things and had been not just beaten up and beaten the hell beaten out of them, but also threats to their family, threats to the people that they loved. We really have led the way, Britain, now, in putting in place the sort of protections to prevent that happening. But there was a real bad time during all through the 70s and 80s and into the early 90s until we had the, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. But, I mean, the Birmingham Six, all those cases were a shame on our system. And doing them, actually, I consider it to have been a privilege because I got to know people at the most extreme time in their lives. And, you know, they never recover. People who've suffered a miscarriage of justice, even when once they've been vindicated... You know, my client was Paul Hill, and I've seen him since. He now lives in the United States, and he married one of the Kennedys. And his own daughter recently died, and I was at the funeral. And Paul's life has not been easy. And, uh, and of course, Jerry Conlon ended up dead young. The stories of the aftermath are horrifying. So we can't be sanguine. And having lawyers who are prepared to fight these cases and to do so fearlessly and not to be intimidated because the rest of the world don't like it, it was never a problem for me. Your love affair with the law and its power to make change has continued. And if we fast forward to today, you're leading a team of experts who last month called for a new Misogyny and Criminal Justice Act to tackle violence and abuse against women. Can you describe what this new law would change for women? What difference would it make? And the fact that we're now talking so much about misogyny, do you see that as a step change that's happened in recent years? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Julia, I mean, five years ago, people, if you used the word misogyny for what we're seeing, you'd have been sort of, you know, ridiculed. And now it's on the lips of our politicians of all, of all shades. 
That's been a big change. I mean, I remember when I wrote Eve Was uh, Framed back in 1992, I very consciously decided that I would not use the word patriarchy. I did talk about sexism and so on, but I did not use the word patriarchy, although I absolutely understand this whole way in which our system is patriarchal and has been. But um, the idea of using a word like misogyny was just because I wanted my book to reach people and not to sort of, if you like, completely frighten the wits out of people. I wanted people people to see that the system had been made by men, that um, the criminal justice systems, like all power institutions, were institutions which were peopled by men. And through their perspective, law had been made and the rules by which we exist. And so it, it wasn't surprising that it wouldn't work for women. And so I, in writing about this, I was, I was trying to point out to the many more people, people who were politicians, the people who do have influence, the people who do sit as judges, in a way that was not going to be frightening the life out of them, explaining that without it being a great conspiracy, this was the reality. And this is why it was not working for women. Now, what has happened is that I've spent my life now trying to change the law. And of course, I ended up in, I mean, for, I've now been 25 years in the House of Lords, so part of that parliamentarian system. And one of the things one's seeking to do is to improve law. And, I, and I've campaigned for change in law and stuff for women. It's become very clear that with all the positive changes that have been made, we still haven't got, uh, had the outcome that we imagined. I mean, one of the examples of that is the fact that, you know, I mean, it is unbelievable that in Britain today that rape convictions are, I mean, there's something like 1%. I mean, it's something, it's extraordinary out of, the, out of the numbers of complaints that are made. The complaints that just are never investigated, never prosecuted even. And then the business of once they are prosecuted, never getting a, a conviction. So there's, a, there's something going wrong. And the, the reality of that is we've never been able to address the attitudinal problems that there are, not just in society at large, but also on the bench, amongst lawyers, prosecutors, and of course, amongst the police. And this misogyny thing, I was asked to do it because the Scottish government, which was looking at hate crime and was introducing legislation on hate crime, you know, racism, homophobia, Islamophobia, all the sort of hatreds that we know can happen towards minorities, um, for people who are trans, people who are disabled, all of that. But when it came to the business of deciding on should sex be included in this, which many women wanted, there was a big argument about the fact that that should it be the word used be sex or gender because of the ways in which trans women would might be excluded if sex was the was the characteristic that would be included in the hate crime bill. So there was a great deal of debate and argument and in order to get their bill through quickly they then decided to have an independent inquiry and they asked me to lead it to look at the whole business of misogyny and how it was experienced by women in Scotland. Well, let me tell you by God, Julia, the evidence was horrifying. There is an interesting generational thing which is that I don't Twitter and tweet and uh, do all of that. You probably do but I don't. I'm really not interested in social media. I've got lots of wonderful friends I don't, don't need more. And so I've kind of kept away from it all. But I've got kids and grandkids and I've got, you know, lots of friends who do it and the like. I was shocked at the way in which the disinhibition that um, there has, has come about because of social media, you know, where women are, you know, you only have to put your head above the parapet and you're, the, you're being threatened, you're being told you're disgusting and fat and ugly and horrible and uh, abused, but you're also threatened with rape. And sometimes the threats with rape are not sort of, I'm going to come and get you because of that might put the perpetrator at risk. They say things like, somebody should come and rape you. 
which is really feeds into that stuff that women know, which is that which they've been told since they were nine, which is there are folk out there who will want to violate you. Women then start limiting their own behaviour. They start losing confidence about um, being as sociable as they might want to be. It has a chilling effect on the aspirations of young women. But the, the other horrifying thing was that this stuff has travelled onto the streets. It's now in the public square. Women described it, you know, that they'd be trying to get a bus and, and late at night and, and a guy would come up and sort of say, you know, where are you off to? Do you fancy going for a drink? And then they say, you know, sorry, I'm trying to go home. And then they say, well, nobody'd want you anyway. You're a fat, ugly cow. We shouldn't be upset by us being insulted, we're told, by the great freedom of speechers. But the fact is that women then start saying, God, is he going to follow me onto the bus? Should I let him get, get on the bus and wait for the next one? Or if he gets on the bus after me, will he follow me home? And so women are having to think through the possible implications of having an altercation with this guy. And so we've got to recognise that misogyny is, is not hatred in the like other hatreds. It's actually something much more complicated because many of the men who do it would say, I like women. I love women. I just don't like feminist women. I just don't like lesbians. I just don't like pushy women. I just And they have a, a great list of the kind of women that they don't like. And they're usually women who are challenging their form of masculinity by the very fact that they want to be equal. This legislation is actually proposing a number of things, that there should be the opportunity for judges to increase a sentence. If the aggravation of misogyny is present, they can they can add to the sentence. And the thing is that this concentrates minds. If a police officer goes to a crime scene and the woman has been uh, the receiving end of criminal behaviour, he has to be then asking himself, is there misogyny here? And in lots of cases, there won't be. You know, so, but it makes people have to think about it and it takes the attention over. You know, you're, you're moving the dial to look at what's, what is, what's the man's intention here, what's going on here, instead of having to always concentrate on the woman and was she inviting this and did she have a short skirt and did she, was she behaving in ways that encouraged a man to do this to her. So it, it's a really interesting piece of legislation that we're recommending. It's also going to criminalise stirring up misogyny because these incel groups are now really coming on strong and, and we've seen a huge increase in the, the stuff that's coming online for them. And then public harassment, misogynistic harassment offence, so that this stuff that happens at bus stops and on buses and on trains and in the public square and in clubs and bars and stuff where women are treated to the most unbelievable stuff. I was on the train myself. I was coming back from Oxford because I was the head of an Oxford college for some, some years. And um, when I was coming back one Saturday at lunchtime, the train was packed, full of mothers with their daughters coming up to go shopping in, in, in London. And there's a group of guys at a table uh, alongside me, and they were in great loud voices talking about who they had um, had intercourse with the night before and what they'd done to women and the different forms of sexual activity they'd been up to. Described not in the way that I have just done for your very uh, delicate podcast, <laughs> but in the coarsest of language, talking about, you know, anal sex. I won't go into it, but I mean, really gross. I turned around and I said, stop that right now. And uh, it's something wonderful about being an older woman. You can do that, you see. <laughs> I said, stop that right now. And the whole train <laughs> looked. And the guys, of course, got the fright of their bloody lives. <laughs> and, um, and there was a silence. I said, it is utterly disgusting to listen to you. Why should we as women have to listen to, be, to this conversation and be degraded by what you're saying and the way that you're talking about women and objectifying women? Just stop it. And there was a silence. And then one of them turned around and said, 
you're right. Um, we're really sorry. We're really sorry. And I, you know, shook my head. Well, you know, then women in the train started putting their thumbs up to me. And uh, and as we got off the train, then uh, Paddington, the woman would come up to me and say, I'm so glad you did that. I didn't want my daughter to be hearing it. And it's just that we're frightened that they're going to turn on us, you know. And uh, And so... Come on, you older women. We're the ones that have to do this. Stop this stuff. Anyway. Um, I like that rallying cry. <laughs> now, I'm going to turn to the uh, final set of questions in the podcast. I always put a fact to my guest and ask them to respond. And the one for you relates to a report that we worked on the launch of together. It's the Us Too report, which was a global investigation of bullying and sexual harassment in the legal industry mm-hmm. and it found one in three female respondents had been sexually harassed in the workplace. Yeah. What's your reaction to that appalling fact? We just know it's true. I mean, I still have young women coming and saying to me, telling me what's just happened to them. And of course, it happened to me as a young woman at the bar, but it still goes on. The piece of work that was done by the International Bar Association was really fantastic because it was global and women from around the law firms everywhere responded to it. I've been in Pakistan where women have talked about the way in which they've been sexually harassed by male colleagues and yet how impossible it is to make a uh, you know, to, to get it to stop. But I mean, law firms in the United States where in choosing who would move up in the office, they wanted to have a, a wet t-shirt party. And that was going to be the way that they decided as to who was recruited. Unbelievable stories that you heard. But but you still have this business of women going off to do a case and it's out of town. And then an older male lawyer sort of saying, let's get a room together and, uh, and making an assumption about it. And sometimes booking it in advance. Extraordinary stuff. I'm afraid it's still a problem in the legal profession and yet we're the folk who are supposed to be trying to get justice for the great populace. In my day you couldn't even talk about it. When I did raise it once, it was in the 80s, I was on Women's Hour, a radio programme here in the UK and the issue of sexual harassment came up. Something must have happened you know, in the public domain and so I was being asked um, about sexual harassment and how it could be dealt with and so on. Should the law be strengthened? And then they said, have you ever experienced sexual harassment? And I said, yeah, of course. When I was a pupil, um, I was in a set of chambers with a guy who was well known to be a, a great womaniser and, um, and predatory. I was sent up a ladder to get him a book from the top shelf and he, he did the old classic thing, which, you know, he ran his hand up the back of my skirt up to my knickers, you know. It was just, anyway, and so I had to then avoid him like the plague. Um, but it was a source of ribald comment and laughter in the, in chambers because there were there were so few women. There were, there were no other women I can remember. Anyway, I said, yes, of course it happened to me. But I didn't give the detail. I said, yes, it did happen to me when I was young. You know, I've run round tables and so on, and there probably isn't a woman who hasn't had that experience. I didn't tell the story about going up the ladder. But I went into the, I was doing a case at the Old Bailey and I went to the bar mess the following morning and there, swanning on a sofa, there was one of the chief prosecutors and he said to me, what's all this about sexual harassment? And I said, yeah, but I was in so-and-so's chambers and, and you know, you know what he was like. He said, he can go to Annabelle's which is a very posh nightclub that the upper classes go to. And he said he can go to Annabelle's any night of the week and pick up any bit of toddy he wants. Why would he sexually harass you? I was clearly considered not attractive enough to be sexually harassed. The failure to understand 
what sexual harassment's about. And of course, all the guys around him all laughed and uh, I got my coffee and said, it happened, and, and off I went. But it was about you degrade the person who makes the allegation. And of course, that's been something that we've seen all around. My next standard question is, what's the worst misogyny you've experienced? But you may have already answered it with that story, story. which is just truly... And I was was already quite... I was a woman in my mid-30s with a very successful practice at the bar. That was how all the guys in a pack would behave, with one of them, of course, being the kingpin who was going to bring me down to size. If you could change one thing for women, if you had all the power to do it, what would it be? One thing. I mean, I really just would like justice for women. I would like all to stop. I mean, what the women in Scotland were saying to me when I was doing these hearings was something has to be done. And you're asking me the same question. What can be done? And I think that it is about we want women everywhere and in all the decision making and at every table and in every area where there is power being exerted. We want women in there, too, and women of all kinds. But it's a big ask. I'm sorry. I haven't got a simple answer. That's a good answer. And finally, a Virginia Woolf quote for you. Virginia says, Mental fight means thinking against the current, not with it. It is our business to puncture gas bags and discover the seeds of truth. The very busy Baroness Kennedy says... Oh, I love that quote. That is so important. And it is sometimes about having to speak up and go against a tide. That can be painful at times because, you know, you will get beaten up. And there are now new ways of beating women up, which is the social media. It does involve us having to be supportive to each other. But um, yes, we do have to puncture those who will put us down and those who will stop us making the gains that women have to make to have a fair and just society. Thank you for a great conversation and I think we've got to get on a train together soon. (laughs) Thank you. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash giwl and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L-Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.